Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, church family. My name is Jacob Thomas. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm the Students and Discipleship Pastor here at Rolling Hills, and I'm so excited to be with you this morning as we dive into Romans 14. If you guys have been coming for the past few months, you know, been walking through master class. This has been a week-by-week, chapter-by-chapter study of Romans, and we're coming towards the end here at Romans 14. And if you were with us last week, you heard Pastor Jason uh, preach on Romans 13, specifically of submission to authorities, and he did a really good job of prefacing it with saying that, um, you know, there are certain teachings in Scripture that are harder to understand and to teach than others, but regardless of that, that's actually the times that we should press in, that we should lean in and see and, and wrestle with these passages, passages and see what is God truly teaching us um, about man, about who he is, about what Christ calls us to, because it's in those moments, those difficult passages, that we learn the most about him. And, and Romans 14 is certainly no exception. Well, Romans 13, as I said before, is a submission to authorities. If you think of that as Paul writing to the church, writing to the church family there and saying, hey, here's how you live in regards to the world. We can think of Romans 14 as something of how to live with each other, the household of faith. Think of it as more of a, a family meeting. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. So I am a middle child, so pray for me. You, you middle siblings know what I mean, right? I'm a middle child of three, so I'm an older brother. i got a, got a little brother that uh, growing up in the church, growing up in, in youth ministry, it was difficult for me because I had my own personal burden and responsibility to make sure that we were both behaving and doing the right thing. So if you're the middle child, you might feel a little bit of this if you grew up in the church, because I was a self-appointed judge, jury, and executioner. Anytime my brother stepped out of line, I was, in, I was there to be sure to bring him back in to remind him that that's not how we behave outside, that we were representing our household well. And um, by God's grace, I had uh, not only my parents, but uh, pastors and, and, and leaders in the ministry to, to sit me down and talk me through it and humbly remind me that, hey, we've got folks in place that know this how to handle this thing better than you do, so maybe you just let them be in charge for a bit, all right? And so, uh, like I said, Romans 14 is something like that. It's, 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 a, it's a family meeting. We have two uh, factions here within the church, and, and there's these tensions and issues that are bubbling up towards the surface, and so you have Paul writing to the church in Rome, and he's calling both both factions, both of these, within the family, both of these elders, he's, 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 he's calling them to the living room, to the coffee room table, and he's saying, let's sit down and be a family. Let me explain to you what that means. So we're going to be talking about that if you want to turn to Romans 14, and it'll also be here on the screen or, or in your Rolling Hills app. But a little bit of context, as I said, Paul is writing to a mixed audience, both uh, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So in, in Acts 18, we learn that Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, he expels all the Jews and they leave Rome and the church falters for a time, but then it comes back, it, it grows and it becomes a primarily Gentile um, audience. And so then when, when the Jews come back, they find that the church is filled with believers who don't necessarily follow the Jewish laws that they grew up with. They don't follow the Torah. They don't follow all of these dietary restrictions. And so now, um, 
the, the, the church at Rome at the time is probably about, uh, scholars say, between 100 and 120 believers spread out across uh, five or so house churches. And we know that um, Paul wrote this and, and gave it and trusted it to Phoebe to deliver it to each of these house churches. So she would recite it to each of these uh, church families that are together under the umbrella of the church of Rome. And he's addressing the tension between these two groups, like I said, Jew and Gentile. And, and another way that we're going to learn how he speaks to this is, Weak and strong, weak and strong. We'll talk about what that means, but first let me pray over our time together. Father, we're so thankful that we um, get to be here before you to uh, hear your word being preached. I pray that I would get out of the way and that you would speak, Lord, that we may behold the wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So start with me here in verse one of Romans 14. It says this, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So there are believers there that are only eating vegetables. And the reasons why they're doing this is to avoid any unclean or, or common foods. You, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's the Daniel fast. He ate only vegetables. And we can look through all of the, the, the Old Testament laws. And so this included you know, fish and pork and those kinds of things. But it also it went a little bit further there in Rome because um, the Jewish believers there at the time were afraid of any food that was offered as a ritual or a sacrifice for pagan worship there in Rome. And so they had made the decision to stay above reproach. We're not going to eat any of it. We don't have to worry about it. We know these vegetables are, are clean, right? That they uh, are allowed to eat it. If you want like bonus homework, go read uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. That kind of itemizes, it lets you see a little bit more of the context that Paul is writing towards. But the irony of this passage is that the people that Paul considers strong are actually the ones that are able to, to live within the freedom of Christ and, and actually break the dietary law. Like if you were to look on paper and say, which one is the weak, which one is the strong, you might argue that the Jewish believers would be the strong ones because they're able to resist some of this temptation of eating these, these, these foods or, or maybe Sabbath or whatever that is. But he's saying, no, no, the strong are those who actually are resting in the grace of God to recognize what Jesus did on their behalf. But nonetheless, there's temptation. Right? We have temptation from both sides the camp. The, the strong have a temptation to ridicule and mock the weak in faith and, and their weak conscience, and the weak have a temptation to pass judgment on the strong for breaking the law. But regardless, if you've been following along either in our mass class series on Sundays or if you have one of our discipleship journals that you've been reading along and jotting down any notes or thoughts that you might have, you may have caught on to this idea. Paul is preaching this message, this idea every single chapter, just about every single verse. And what he continues to preach and preach and preach and preach is your own righteousness does not cut it. You need Jesus. That regardless of how much you try to follow the law, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So we can't even, no matter how much we try to white-knuckle it, we can't follow the law the way that Christ did. And so we're to recognize that. In fact, he also says there are those that, that don't know the law, the Gentiles that don't know the law, but in so carrying out obedience to God, they are actually obeying the law. So obe being obedient to God is what is most important here. And then a true sign of spiritual maturity in following the letter of the law is to be able to rest in Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, to recognize what he did on your behalf. But as I said, the strong are still tempted to go about ridiculing others. And, and we'll see... Uh, what the temptation, what the consequences of that are. But think of the weak of faith. I want to say this real quick. The weak of faith are not those that um, 
you would think of that are just, you question whether or not they're following Jesus, right? We think of that week of faith means, is it going to be a day where they just stop following Jesus? No. What he means in week, it's not really a, a derogatory term. What he's saying is simply that these are people who have yet to understand the full implications of the gospel that they have yet to fully understand that I don't have to follow these food laws. It doesn't make or break their testimony, but they have yet to, to grow up and disciple and mature into the discipleship of Jesus to know that there is freedom and liberation from the Jewish require, requirements. And Paul is preaching not, not to gain converts. Like he preaches the entire gospel throughout the book of Romans. But remember, he's, he's reading, they're reading this letter to the church, believers that are already there. So he's not necessarily preaching to gain converts, but he's preaching the gospel to promote peace. He wants to see peace throughout the Roman Empire, and especially in the church there in Rome. He wants us to remember that Christians have peace through Christ, so as Christians we are to make peace with others. And that includes not only our own personal relationships, our own household, but that also includes the greater community that God has placed us in. As I said, Paul's hope is that the weak would become strong, but to the strong specifically. He opens up in verse 1. He says, to the strong, accept them. A better word to understand that would probably be to welcome. So welcome them in. What does that mean? Welcome them into your home. Welcome them into your circle of acquaintances. Welcome them in as if they're one of your own. It's not an acceptance as in a begrudging, stand on the other side of the room and, and passively just allow them to carry out. No, it's, it's actually including them as a part of your family because that's who they are in Christ. Now, notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say sit on opposite sides of the room, right? He's not like mom, like don't even look at each other, right? That's not what Paul says. He doesn't say, go to different churches, shop at different grocery stores, live in different neighborhoods. He doesn't say any of that. No, he, he pleads with them. He says, command each of them to seek the other out in love and acceptance. Why is that? Well, if you're following along with our notes, you'll see your first point here is that uh, it is impossible to live for Christ outside of community. Again, remember, the, the church of Rome at the time, 100 to 120 believers across five different house churches. And he's saying, hey, if you want this thing to grow and to thrive, if you want the church to thrive, we're going to need everybody. We can't get caught up in, in minor differences. We're to invite each other into our homes, which also means if you're inviting them into your home, you're probably having a meal, which is ironic because the one issue that got them there in the first place was what? Over food, Right? <laughs> So, you know, it's not like he's saying, go on a coffee date, don't even look at the fish, right? He's bringing them in. He's saying, no, I want you to share a meal together. I want you to live life on life together. Messy to be brothers and sisters in Christ together. And this isn't exclusive to Rome, right? We all need community. We all need to share a meal together, to, to worship together. Um, I'm going to flip over to Ephesians. Very similar situation he writes in Ephesians chapter 2. And he writes this, Paul writes this. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you once were far, far away have been bought, ne brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create, it, create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And him, 
the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So not only are we building the church ourselves, as Christ is the cornerstone and we support one another and, and build each other up, but also because Christ is the cornerstone, we build ourselves up. And, and those, it's a symbiotic relationship. The two go hand in hand, whether it's the church in Ephesus or the church in Rome or the church in Knowlesville, Paul's message is going to remain the same. God gave the world his son so that we'd be reconciled to him and we'd be reconciled to each other. We can't neglect one over the other. So when we love God well, simply put, we love our communities well, right? We love our household. We love our neighborhoods well when we love God well. And living in community is actually a very important ingredient to being a fully mature disciple of Jesus. We do life together. We worship together. We're leading in the community together. So God has placed you where he has placed you in your workplace for a reason, to go and lead, but then also to link arms with other believers and lead in the community together. And when we actually do this, especially with worship, so we, so we come in each and every week on a Sunday morning and we worship, and uh, for a lot of us in the room, we may think that's a time for us to um, relax, maybe recharge, get ready for whatever the week ahead looks like, and that's certainly, that's certainly a great thing, right? We all want that. But the primary purpose of coming in and worshiping and recognizing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior is to, to set our problems down, take our eyes off of them for a moment, and gaze up at Jesus and see how small those problems really are. See who's in control. All right, follow with me in verse 4. Paul continues on. He says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One com- person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that we might, he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. So you see here, there's a common theme between whatever side of the theological opinion or issue that you fall on, there's a common theme. There's one recognizing who is in control above it all. That's God. And there's a spirit of gratitude to be thankful. Regardless of which way you fall, you're still thankful. We're still just be grateful for the things that God has given us. And then um, most importantly, you see here in your notes, when we meet together in community, it's impossible to judge or disdain one another. See, our theological opinions our political leanings, our parenting styles, all of those things, ultimately should point to honor one person, the Lord. Paul's writing here that Jesus, Jesus didn't die for you to argue over food. Jesus also didn't die for you to stay out of the community. We're invited into these tough conversations. Jesus died so that you would honor him in everything that you do. And specifically in this, in this passage, I think it speaks um, poignantly to us today, is, is he's saying, hey, I want you to take, I want you to take a, um, a name, a label, whatever it is, I want, to, I want you to take this, this word out of your vocabulary, and that's the infamous they. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like they, right? Them. Right? So, so something like this. They eat things that the law clearly forbids. 
Or they live under the law and they should be living for Christ. Or maybe it's uh, their kids need to behave better. All right, there's one. Uh, I don't think they know what's best for our church. Or maybe they're what's wrong with Nolensville. Right, it's this us versus them mentality. And, and, and Paul is saying, stop it. When we, when we speak like that, we create what's called an echo chamber. Maybe you guys know what that is. It's like we continue to affirm the opinions that we want to hear, continue to hear them, which just so happen to be our own, the ones that we just said. It's an echo chamber, right? Jesus does not call us to stay in a chamber. Jesus, the, the life of Jesus is to call us onto a path with him, and that requires stepping out and having those difficult conversations, not staying where you're at. Jesus doesn't want us to gain attention by causing division. No, but to give him glory through the way we set aside our differences and meet together. You see, when we meet together, we open up our homes, share a meal together, right? We, we, we let out all the messiness and do life together. Something happens. The walls come down, the fences open, no more guards. We talk. And we may not see eye to eye on everything, but we at least can see each other, recognize our Christian witness that we're both one in Christ, and so that's what's highest priority, regardless of the things that we may not necessarily agree on. The way that we do this at Rolling Hills is through community groups. So we're less than a month out of the launch of our community groups for the fall, and we couldn't be more excited because this is one of those ways that we get to have an impact on the community. It starts with us rubbing shoulders together in, in, in over a meal in the home and sharing with one another life. Even if we butt heads, we can still recognize our differences and, and, and move on and love, learn how to love each other. A lot of you guys here might be new for the first time, and, and that's awesome. Welcome. Um, and, and maybe you've been coming here for the last few weeks and you're unsure. You're like, I want to jump in a group, but I'm kind of nervous about it. Well, let me tell you this. We've got a lot of new groups that will be launching in the fall that we're really, really excited about. And one of the easiest ways for somebody who's new to get plugged into the group is to meet with other new people. And so we want you, we want you here. We want you to be plugged in to a group because unity is, is one of those byproducts of community groups. And it's important because what's true about Rome then is true about Nolensville today. And what I mean by that is there are plenty of opportunities to get divided over things that don't matter. If you need an example, go check the Nolensville 411. All right. <laughs> Little testy. Right? There's, there's certain things that, that don't matter, or if they do matter, then you see Christians that go at each other over social media to the point, elevating to the point that you're dragging somebody else's Christian witness through the mud. Then what matters the way that you treated that person or the issue at hand, right? And it's not just Nolensville 411 problems, but there are real heavy issues like race, gender, sexuality, technology, politics. These are heavy topics. And listen, the world is watching the, the church closely about how we're going to respond. Not just the things we say, but how we say it. How we say it with each other. The world sees that. One of the primary ways that we do the hard work of having these conversations, even when it makes us uncomfortable and we're unsure, is encouraging one another through those community groups. As we carry on, you may have noticed that Paul is on the side of the strong. like He, he identifies with the strong, but he's also fine whether, whether or not one observes the food and Sabbath laws out of living, living out of their faith. What he is definitely against is demanding one uniformity towards that Torah observance. He says, I, this is how I lean. You can look that way, but the one thing that I'm definitely against is one person trying to force everybody else to see it equally, when ultimately this is not a matter of gospel importance. It's almost like uh, 
me and my brother, when, when we get in fights, no matter how right I felt about an issue, which, by the way, I usually was right, my dad would, would sit us down, look each of us in the eye, and says, it doesn't matter what you're fighting about. What matters is that you're fighting. Brothers don't fight. The family of God does not fight. We love each other. We accept each other, even when we don't see eye to eye on things. Regardless of what the issue is at hand, it, and church unity doesn't come by human agreement. It doesn't come by the effects of human agreement. What I, know, what I mean by that is church unity is only going to happen because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be find, found anywhere else. You see here on your notes, our convictions to God when handled correctly become a proclamation of the gospel. As I said earlier, Paul is yearning for peace. He says Christians have peace through Christ, so we make peace with others. So regardless of our religious convictions, when we follow them, we're demonstrating our trust in God. So two things happen like within, within church discourse. Is when we firmly demonstrate the utmost importance of the gospel, the world witnesses it. When we humbly set aside unessential arguments and work together for the essential gospel, the world witnesses it. So either way, whatever we do, the world witnesses the gospel in action. Carry on with me in verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we all will stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. Again, Paul's saying, meet together. But he adds a little caveat, specifically to the strong. He says, let, let your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters, Eat vegetables. Don't force them to break the law. And the burden of responsibility for there falls on the older brother. Why? Because he's saying, you know better. You know what it's like to live out the full freedom of Christ and what, that, what the law entails, right? And someday the weak will get there. You're to help them get there, but not right now. Don't kick them while they're down <laughs> whenever they step out of line because actually you've done more harm than good and them following their own convictions. And so within the church, there's a responsibility on the part of the strong to use that spiritual discernment and to walk others through that. We should not bring others to sorrow. We accept others in the same way that Jesus accepted us. Because that's where it ultimately begins, right? When we recognize what Jesus did on our behalf, that should then push us to, to, to go push that love of Jesus on others. And so what that looks like is, is that our relationship with God is made right, then we, we, we're now motivated to go and love others. If we fail to do that, there's one of two things that could happen, or one of two things that are happening. The first one is what's called gospel amnesia. And that simply means that even though you're a follower of Christ, you've forgotten what Jesus did on your behalf. You've forgotten what it means to be forgiven. And you fail to love others well. Or, more scarier option, <laughs> is that you never had the love of Jesus in you in the first place. It starts with Jesus, and then we give that to others. Your righteousness, the strong in the room, your righteousness is not based on your ability to be the strong Christian in the room. I need to hear that, so I'll say it again. Your righteousness is not based upon your ability to be the strong Christian in the room. 
but to recognize Jesus' love for you and extending that love to others. In fact, in, in this passage, we see kind of a paradox that we talk about how to be a family of faith together, how, to, uh, how the church is supposed to stand together. But then here, in verse 12, Paul says, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So he says, we stand together as a church, but in a deeper sense, each of us stands alone before the Lord. Why is that? Well, it's because we stand accountable to God and to God alone, and that's what motivates us to go and help each other grow. My love for God spurs me on to love others. You see here on your notes, we have a responsibility to grow and help others grow. I'm going to jump back into Ephesians, but this time start with chapter 4. So he writes this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, his grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then down in verse 11, he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. They will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. For in him, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up as, in love as each part does its work. So God has equipped each of us to use our gifts, both to help the church grow up, but then also to grow ourselves. And, and, and to the world, this is a necessary message. This is very necessary. Because the world sees churches that have become more divided over secondary issues than they have over, over primary doctrine. We become more recognized for our secondary issues, like um, our, our stance on baptism, spiritual gifts, women in ministry, Right? Or, or maybe we, we uh, look down on churches because the worship is too loud or the coffee's not good enough. Did I get in someone's backyard there? Yeah. When we should be, should be teaching and, and we should be known for things like the, the nature of the Trinity, for creation, the providence of God, the work and person of Jesus Christ. i got to tell you, so in February, we had the Asbury Revival, and it was beautiful. It was also frustrating and discouraging. I'll explain what I mean. So if you don't know, Asbury Revival, for two weeks straight, college students there at Asbury on campus, they were engaged in nonstop prayer, nonstop worship, deliverance from sin and death. It was incredible. For ev- but for every person's life who's interrupted by the saving grace of Christ, there seemed to be 10 more Christians on the internet explaining why this wasn't a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, was all of it a work of the Holy Spirit? I don't know. I wasn't there. But I think it's, it's frustrating when, when we pray and pray. We want God to move in our country. God, we need a movement in our country. And then when he does, we, we get dissatisfied. We say, it's, well, I wanted you to do it in my church. Or I wanted you to do it in, in my city. Or why can't you do it in, in my denomination? And if it's not, then that must not be the work of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what Paul is calling us to. He says, praise God. There could be somebody who was saved there at Asbury Revival who will never walk through those doors. And I'm still going to praise the Lord that a soul was saved today. Right? 
For some of us in the room, and this is, I'm preaching to myself here, our next step in following after Jesus isn't more Bible knowledge, but how to love each other and respect their differences. For some of us in the room, it's not necessarily more spiritual discipline, but how to communicate the gospel with those we don't agree with through humble discourse and trust God in the process. Let's, let's wrap up in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. See here the last point on your notes. Differences are reminders that we don't have it all figured out. And let me tell you, this is a good thing. It should humble us. And it's a good thing when we come across differences. We can recognize that someone's still following after the gospel, even though we don't see eye to eye. It's a good thing because we know that God is inviting us into something deeper. There's something that I don't understand, and my first reaction should be love and accept that person well, welcome them in as one of my own. But then go and, and search the scriptures and learn more about Jesus. Learn more about who God is. It's a beautiful, good thing. But what do we do know? What do we know? We know that the, the kingdom of God is ultimately not concerned with temporary issues. Right? Paul writes that it's about eternal righteousness, peace, love, and joy that's found in the Holy Spirit. We're invited to build up and love on one another, not to be divided over tertiary matters. And, and we're also invited to rest in Christ. It's not a list of rules, but actually rest is found in our relationship with him, that when we, when we honor that well, when we, when we love him well, We'll love others. We'll love our community well. We love those people in the back of your mind that you know you don't agree with all the time, but you still know they're a brother and sister in Christ, so you've got to do the hard thing and love them anyway. <laughs> That's what Paul is calling us to. And we please God when we serve him faithfully, not follow a bunch of rules. When we recognize that Jesus, he died for our sins. He laid down his life. We didn't deserve it. He did that for us. Now everything else falls away, right? We can now reconcile to God the Father, and we can follow after the man and woman that God created us to be. And not only stay there, but then use that to, to share the gospel with others, to love each other well. And when we, live the, when we truly live the gospel, we can lay aside those differences. Like I said, love each other well. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.